You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. So thanks to Sam and the, and the team. That was great. It's a tough act to follow. And I also want to say thanks to you guys because I had a moment to sit and reflect up here and to hear you sing gave me just a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. And uh, I got a little emotional, so I'm not crying over the fact that I'm sharing this message with you. I'm a little teary-eyed over the, just what the joy that we are going to experience someday. Uh, as David mentioned, I'm Rob. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I was surprised to, uh, you know, we, we have had such blessing to have a talented group of guys sharing the message from the pulpit. And so I was a little surprised a few weeks ago when Jason asked if I would be willing to come and share a message because I never thought I would get uh, called up to the major leagues to borrow a sports metaphor and share a message. And then as I reflected on it a little bit, I realized that we have launched Kyle down to Grace Gerald, and so I'm filling in a Sunday that Kyle would normally preach. <laughs> you know, no, no pressure there, all right? Uh, so, but I, I am glad to be here. I'm honored to be here to, to uh, share a message with you. And we're kind of transitioning from a series where we looked at Advent and, and hope and where we put our hope. Last week, we looked a little bit about the church and growing together. And we're going to be transitioning into Psalms here next month. So it was an opportunity to kind of have a standalone message, if you will. And this is something that for a little while I've been kind of reflecting on. It's been part of my journey and uh, so I, I thought I would share this message with you. I've, I've kind of tried to capture some thoughts on paper, and I pray that this makes sense, and if not, we're just going to roll with it uh, anyway. So speaking of prayer, let's, let's start with that, and then we'll jump right in. Father God, this is your day. We'll be glad, and we will rejoice in it. I don't know who's here that needs to hear this, but I trust that somebody does besides myself. So I pray as we, as we work our way through your word, as we work our way through scripture, that uh, we open our hearts, our minds, to receive what you have in store for us. I'm so grateful that we're here, and I'm grateful you're here in our midst. May all I say and do bring glory to you. I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right. You guys familiar with the concept of a bucket list? I'm not seeing very many nods, but okay. All right, a few nods. Got it. Yeah, a bucket list, by definition, are things you want to accomplish, places you want to go before you die or kick the bucket. When you're my age, you may not only have a list, you're probably checking things off your bucket list. For most of you who are younger than me, you are probably thinking when I get to be his age, I might get around to having a bucket list. Now, some of you also are going to say, now, come on now, Rob, Scripture tells us that we should be storing our treasures in heaven and not here on earth, and I agree with that 100%. And in my defense, I'm going to say, sorry, I'm human. But I will also counter with Scripture that says, God created the heavens and the earth and saw that it was good. Matter of fact, it says very good. And even though we've pretty much messed it up, I'm going to try to enjoy some of the goodness that's here before I go and celebrate the greatness of things to come. Now, on my bucket list is to visit 
Canton, Ohio, and Cooperstown, New York. A few of you may recognize that. For the rest of you, Canton, Ohio is home to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And Cooperstown, New York is the home of the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. My two favorite sports growing up, something I've spent hours and hours watching and rooting for my teams, and the thought to be able to go to those two locations and see the best of the best at what they did and just kind of sit in there and marvel at their accomplishments, it's just something I'd really like to do. I'd really like to experience that. Now, when we think about greatness and we think about Hall of Fames, good news is we don't have to go anywhere to experience greatness of a group of men and women. As a matter of fact, we can do that right here, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Because we're going to take a look at the Hall of Fame of Faith, men and women of great faith, that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you will start thumbing your way over to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be in chapter 11 today. Now, talented pastors, Jason and, and Kyle, etc., they can give one verse of scripture and spend 30 minutes talking about it. I need a whole chapter, so we're going to work our way through the chapter. Not the whole chapter, but big parts of chapter 11 as we look through this at various things. But we're going to start off at the beginning of chapter 11. And there's four things I want to get to this morning. Four. Jason had ten. I can only come up with four. First of all, what I want us to do is define... Biblical faith. When we look at faith, what is it? Biblical faith. And where do we possibly get a little bit off track? We'll look at that. Secondly, I want us to identify whether faith is important as Christians. I can actually answer that right now. Yes, it is. But why is it important? And we are going to unpack that a little bit. Then I want us to take a look at if faith is important and something that we as Christians should have, I want us to take a look at someone or some folks that demonstrated great faith that we see in chapter 11. And then finally, what I want us to do after we talk through all of this, I want us to consider our response to what we look at this morning. So those are our four points. Uh, we'll work our way through it. So let's start with point number one. We're actually going to start in verse 1, Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2 actually. Um, actually, one through three, sorry. The writer of Hebrews, uh, so here's the great news is we don't have to go to a definition, we don't have to go to a dictionary because the writer of Hebrews actually defines faith for us, biblical faith. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Let me read verse 1 again. I, I'm actually going to pick one from the New American Standard. Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. Now we catch that? What biblical faith says is, is belief, absolute belief, Without proof, without any reason for that belief. 
It is trust without verification. It's conviction. One of the versions of Scripture actually says conviction without evidence. True biblical faith is believing without any proof. So what are examples that maybe uh, we may be faced with? The world will say your cancer is incurable. There's no hope. Biblical faith says I can be cured and restored. The world says that your marriage is beyond repair. It cannot be redeemed. Biblical faith says, no, 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 no. That can be healed, restored, and grow. The world says that your finances are such a mess that you may have to be living on the street. There's just no hope. Biblical faith says God will provide for us. The world says the addiction is unbreakable. Cannot be overcome. Biblical faith says it can be beaten. The person can be restored. But see, often here we miss the mark because we like the first part of the verse, but we miss the second part, and that's the blind faith part of it. And sometimes our prayer, mine included, says something like this, Jesus, if you would only show me a sign, just give me a little hint, show me a little something, then... I will have great faith. But see, that's the thing. That's not faith. That's not biblical faith if you have proof. It may be another emotion. It may be excitement, joy, disappointment, depending on what that sign is. But the true definition of biblical faith is we need no proof to have that hope, that faith, that belief. The second way, and I think part of related to that we get off track is, Because we put our faith, or lack thereof, on the outcome that we want versus on the person who brings us that outcome. What do I mean by that? We put our faith that our illness will be cured, our marriages will be healed, the addictions will be overcome, rather than in the faith of Jesus Christ, who's the one who can do that for us. See, when we get our faith fixed on Jesus... I would argue when we hit the graduate level of faith that the results are less important once we have our faith on Jesus himself. It also helps us to understand some confusing and difficult scripture. Now, for me, one of the ones that uh, we see in Mark here, uh, count in Matthew as well, and Mark, Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Here's the one that we kind of look sideways at. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it does not doubt it in his heart, has faith, but believes what he says will happen and it will be done for him. Okay, come on now. Mountains don't lift up and go into oceans. If that was my prayer, I'd be like, well, show me a little bit of a sign there, a little bit, eh, I'm not really following it. But if I have my faith in Christ, the one who created the mountains and created the sea, well, then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. He created it. If he wants the mountain to jump, the mountain will jump. Another great example of faith not necessarily being in the right place is a story in Matthew 8. If you recall, after he, uh, Jesus preached for a while, he got into a boat and his disciples followed him and they went out on the sea and a violent storm arose. You see it on the screen. 
And so it says here at the end of verse 24, Jesus was sleeping. So in the middle of the storm, Jesus is taking a nap and the disciples are panicked. Disciples come up and woke him up and said, Lord, save us. We're going to die. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, why are you faithful, you of little faith? Then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. Here we see, now the disciples, remember, they are professional fishermen, most of them. They are used to being on the sea, they're used to being in storms, and even they at this point in time are saying, oh, we're going to die. But they knew enough to put their faith in the one that could possibly save them, and he does. He calms the sea. So, true biblical faith is hope, trust, belief without proof. So, we already talked about is faith important. Why is it important? Well, faith, if you are sitting here this morning and are a saved believer of Jesus Christ, then you have demonstrated biblical faith. Scripture tells us that in a number of places, and I won't, for the sake of time, we won't go through all of them. Let me just read a couple. We know this. Ephesians 2, verse 8, is for you are saved by grace, God's grace, through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is God's gift. Romans 1.17 says, For as in God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous, what? By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him, what? By faith into grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. And there are multiple dozens of other places where it talks about through faith we have been saved. So without faith, it is impossible to be saved. And when you made that decision to follow Christ, if you're a believer of Christ, you did so by faith. Why? Because there wasn't proof at that point in time, but you made the decision to step out in faith and follow Christ as your follower, as your Lord and Savior, without proof. It is the foundation of our belief. But even though once we are saved, what happens is too often, so often, our faith wanes and we lose sight of that. And we say things, prayers like, oh, Lord, just renew my faith, renew my faith, when our very first step to be a follower of God was by faith, and we want to return to that. We want to be restored. We want to get back to that level of faith. Oftentimes, we want to see it to believe it. If you recall, at the very end, uh, this is the account in John, our, our, the poor apostle who will be forever known as Doubting Thomas. Thomas says uh, he wasn't around when Jesus appeared to the disciples, if you recall the story. And all the disciples says, hey, this is great, Jesus has come back. And Thomas says, no, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Until what? Until I see him. And until I put my finger through the nail holes in his hand, and I stick my finger in the side where he was pierced by a spear. 
And then what happens is Jesus comes and appears to Thomas and allows Thomas to do that. And all of a sudden now Thomas has faith. And Jesus says to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. That's us. For those of us who have been saved to the faith, through faith, it's the foundation of our belief. Now, as our faith wanes, one of the things that we can do, when you go to learn something, when you go to master something, one of the tricks is to look at somebody who has done it very, very well. If you're learning how to cook, you watch cooking shows. If you're learning how to play an instrument, you may watch somebody play an instrument. All of us right now can flip houses because of HGTV. It's easy. I've watched six episodes of Fixer Uppers. I'm ready to go. So if we are feeling like we may not be where we need to be in our faith, our walk of faith, it is always good to refer to those who have demonstrated great faith. And this is what we find in chapter 11. So I want us to take a look at that. Now, for the sake of time, I don't have, we can't go over every single one here. So uh, because I have the ear mic and the pulpit, I chose who I believe is the goat. The greatest of all times when it comes to faith. My personal opinion. And that is... Noah. Noah. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says, By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So let's unpack a little bit about Noah. What do we know about Noah? Uh, scripture tells us a couple things, and then there's a couple things that we assume based off of biblical um, kind of legend, if you will. We see at the very end of chapter 5 of Genesis that he is the son of Lamech. When we pick him up, we see that uh, Noah is middle age. He's 500, but he lived to be 930, so it's kind of middle age. He's a farmer, meaning he's a man of the land. As the scripture says, he's a man of the land, so he's a farmer. We see that he's married. His wife isn't named, but he has three sons, and all three sons are also married. Now, biblical legend says places Noah in Mesopotamia, which is current-day Iraq, somewhere in that area of the world. And also, based off of how Scripture is written and lineage is written, it is likely that Noah is the oldest son and the heir to Lamech's estate, because he is listed first. Even though he has other brothers and sisters, he likely inherited the land. He's been farming the land through his throughout his whole life. And most importantly, Scripture tells us that Noah found favor in the Lord. Noah was righteous. And so we go back, if we go back to Genesis chapter 6, God communicates with Noah. And it says this, God said to Noah, 
I have decided to put an end to every creature. For the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Now, we read that and we go, yeah, we know the story. So we just kind of keep going. But this is remarkable. So let's just take a second. So here's Noah. He's living his best life, if you think about it. He's got three sons to carry on the, the family farm. He's probably prominent in his community because as a farmer, he was providing food to the local community. He's, he's married, has his sons, everything's going good. And then God says to him, I'm wiping out, I'm destroying everything on earth. Now, what does that mean? Noah's father, Noah's mother, all of his brothers and sisters, his aunts and uncles, his cousins, all will be wiped out. Anybody who was helping him on the farm, wiped out. His wife's family, gone. His daughter-in-law's family, extended family, all will be gone. The only ones that God identifies is Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, those eight. Everybody else will be wiped out. Anybody he's met at the market will be destroyed. His neighbors, destroyed. Anybody he knows currently at that point in time, outside his family, is going to be wiped out. Think about that. Noah's just farming, living his life, and God says, hey, I'm going to wipe out everyone other than your family. Every animal, with a few exceptions, we'll cover that, will be gone. Horses, oxen, goats, sheep, dogs, cats, birds, everything gone. Every stock of corn, every stock of grain, tree, bush, weed, gone. His house, neighbor's house, the market, every house, gone. Everything that Noah knows to be real is going to be destroyed because God tells him he's going to destroy it all. And God says, I am going to bring, it's going to be wiped out by a flood. Well, at that point, Noah's probably going to say, uh, what's that? Because here's the interesting thing. Check this out. A lot of biblical scholars don't believe that rain has even been introduced to the world at this point in time. When we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 6, after God has created the, the earth, it says, water would come out of the ground and water the entire surface of the land. So likely Noah has never experienced rain, much less know what the heck a flood is. So everything he knows is going to be wiped out by something he doesn't necessarily know what it is. But he and his family are going to survive because he is to build an ark. Again, my question would be, a what? Based off of where Noah lived and grew up, chances are he may not have even seen a boat Never even known what it was, and now he is being commanded to build an ark, build a boat. But this isn't just like any other boat. 
This thing is, God gives them some dimensions, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall with three stories and rooms throughout the ark. Now, I'm sure Noah's a pretty handy guy because he was on a farm. He built pens for animals. He did kind of other things. It's a long way to go from building a pen to building the largest ship that has ever been built to date. And the other thing that's kind of curious to me is God gives dimensions, but have you ever tried to put something together without having a visual image of what it's supposed to be when you're putting it together? For all the college kids, all the Ikea furniture that you've tried to put together, try doing that without directions. Doesn't work. So he's got directions on the dimensions, and he's supposed to go out and find gopher wood, whatever that is, and not just some gopher wood, a whole lot of gopher wood that he's got to go ahead and mill because this is a very, very large boat. So he's got to go out, he's got to find it, he's got to chop it down, he's got to mill it, and then by hand, he has to put together this massive boat. And no pressure here, Noah, but if it doesn't sail, <laughs> well, your family is a... So it's got to be seaworthy on top of that. So then God says to Noah, hey, uh, I want you also to gather some sacrificial animals, which would be familiar to Noah, and bring them on board. But two of every creature is somehow going to show up at your boat. If I'm Noah, I'm thinking, I don't even know what all the creatures, how do I know that the list is complete when it comes up? I mean, what, what is a platypus? I don't know, but supposedly two of them are going to show up. And Noah's job is to what? Provide food for all these animals. So not only do you not necessarily know all the animals, what in the world does a platypus eat? And this is further complicated by the fact that because some of these animals eat other animals that are going to be on the boat, yet he's got to provide for all these animals. And then the next issue is, how, for how long? Is this a weekend getaway? Is this a month thing? A year thing? How long? God doesn't give any idea, so yet he's got to go out and he's got to gather for these animals what they eat and bring it on um, and so he doesn't know for how long. He also doesn't know when the flood's going to come. God just says, hey, you got to go start building this boat. And so he gets to work on this. And the Bible doesn't tell us how long it took him. But by if you add up the ages of his sons and when they got married and all the rest of that stuff, and I promise you there's no math in this message, it could have taken... 70 years for Noah to build a boat. Likely less. So it's January 22nd. How many of you who have resolutions have made it to January 22nd? And yet what Noah has to do is year after year, month after month, he's got to go and start building this boat. And oh, by the way, his wife, his sons, their wives saying, hey, you got, you got to believe you got to believe God's spoken to me. And you know that the local community is going, oh, man, what's crazy old Noah up to now? You know the wives are hearing from their family saying, well, we're so sorry we gave you marriage into the crazy Noah's family. I'm sorry you're, you're there. So he keeps all the family, he keeps his focus. He works year after year 
during the ridicule from those around here, and then this is, this is just, this is it. Genesis 6, verse 22, it says, And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him without any proof. Not a drop of rain, not a random coyote showing up to get on the boat. No proof, absolute faith. And that's why Noah is in the Hall of Fame. That's Hall of Fame type stuff for faith. Now, we may have a couple reactions when we reflect on Noah. My hope is that when we are low on faith, we look to Noah as an inspiration and we say, hey, wow, look at this guy and what he was able to do, his family being part of that. Just great faith. And, and even if I'm not there, I can focus and model and be a little bit more like Noah. A second reaction, though, might be as, as I did. <laughs> I would have missed the boat. <laughs> My faith isn't there. My faith isn't that strong. I mean, I, I'm just not there. It's hopeless. Ah, but wait. There are a lot of people of great faith that aren't mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. We see throughout Scripture of examples to this. Elijah, when he was facing the prophets of Baal, if you recall the story, like 300 of them, and they're trying to get the, the oxen to burn, and he, Elijah says, no, 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 pour more water on there, pour more water on there, pour more water on there, filled up the moat around it, drenched this thing, and he had faith that the Lord would ignite it, and it did. Elijah, the centurion, if we think, whom Jesus notes that he saw no greater faith than that centurion who believed in Jesus. And think about another example of the woman who had the, the bleeding uh, disease, and she knew, she had faith that if she could just touch Jesus's tunic or cloak, she'd be healed. She works her way to do that. There are great examples of faith. Also, keep in mind, when we go back to a Hall of Fame example of the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who have played football and baseball, there are 335 total in the Football Hall of Fame and like 350 in the Baseball Hall of Fame. You don't have to be Hall of Fame to have faith. And so even though Noah seems like an incredible example, do not be discouraged on this. Now, the other, the other reaction that we may have is to say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This list here, these are like the icons of the Old Testament. These are God's chosen people. I'm not, I'm not in that category. Look at these people of great faith. But they were human. Abraham, great faith, man of great faith. But not once, but twice, feared for his life and pawned off his wife, Sarah, as his sister in order to save his skin. Sarah, a woman of great faith, laughed and mocked God in his presence. 
when told that she would conceive of a child. Isaac, like father, like son, pawned off his wife as his sister because he got scared and wanted to save his life. Jacob deceived his brother to get the birthright and then went along with his mother to deceive his father by putting goat skins on him to get the blessing. And then, obviously, we know Jacob had some questioning, questionable parenting skills later on in life. Moses is listed, man of great faith, murderer, killed a man. And then when asked to go and face Pharaoh, what does Noah say? Oh, God, can't send me. I don't speak very well. And argued with God. Rahab, woman of great faith, was a prostitute. Gideon, man of great faith, but before he went and did it, he said, God, you got to show me a sign here. And the whole story about the fleece. If you make the fleece wet and the ground dry, then I'll know. And then that God did that. And he's like, well, wait a minute. Make the ground wet and the fleece dry. And so God did that. Barak. Barak wouldn't follow God's command for him unless another man's wife went with him in order to do it. He said, I'm not going unless she goes. Samson. Yeah, we don't have time. David. We really don't have time. These weren't perfect people. They were sinful, fallen, frail humans, just like me, just like you. The difference is, when given a choice, they showed great faith without proof. That's why they're mentioned, but they're no different than us. So, what is our response to this? Well, fortunately, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit, knew that on the 22nd of January, 2023, a group of people in Grace Church, Salado, would be going, man, what do we do with this? So he wrote us down. What do we can do with this? Hebrews chapter 12. Don't worry, we're not going to do this whole chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews starting with verse 1. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. So I love this imagery of a race. And this you're going to have to take on faith because I have no proof. But I actually used to be a runner. And I've run two marathons uh, in my lifetime. Um, and and I, every time I read this, I think about a marathon. So if you think about it, running a marathon, 26.2 miles, and yes, anybody who's run a marathon always puts .2. And that's because that .2 is worse than the previous 26. But if you're running a marathon, if you think about it, as you're running through, there are so many different turns that you could make off of that route, right? You're just running along, and you're like, okay, I could turn here. Oh, there's another turn. There's another turn. So what happens is race organizers enlist a whole bunch of people, and they go out there, and they stand there and say, no, 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 not this way. Keep going. The finish line that way. Come on. You're doing great. Keep going that way. 
Well, that's kind of what this is because he's, uh, the writers say in the race of faith, therefore, why is that therefore? Everything we just talked about in chapter 11, great faith, we are surrounded by a large cloud of witnesses. Who are that? Those are the people on the race of faith that are going, no, 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 hey, don't go this way. No, 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 keep going this way. This is the this finish line's that way as we're moving along. And it says, lay aside every weight. What is that? That's, that's just the stuff we bring on and that gets in the way that we keep our eyes on the wrong thing. And the sin that so easily ensnares us, I have this vision that each of those turns is like where you could go wrong. Each of those is like a sin. Oh, hey, this is good, but I'm going to go down this route. But that doesn't get you to the finish line. But if we are focused on it, what it says is, hey, we've got a whole crew that's surrounding us, and they're, they're urging you to keep going. They're urging you to keep going. And what are we aiming for? Like in a race, we're aiming towards the finish line. What are we aiming for? This time is also the finish line. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source or author and perfecter of our faith. So that's the finish line. Jesus is there. We just have to keep looking at that. He is who gives us our faith, perfects our faith. And so we just need to not go down all these paths that we want to go down, stay within this, and keep running. So here's the thing. When we look at this, we don't need to be the fastest runner, and you don't need to be Hall of Fame. What we need to do is keep our eyes fixed on Christ and just keep running the race. Just keep running the race. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I am the model of those that are so easily ensnared carrying the weight of, of things that aren't important, and so often I take my eyes off of you, my faith wanes. It's always good for me to go back and see the people that you identify as having great faith, imperfect, sinful people, but they fix their eyes on you. My prayer for everyone in this room as we leave here, go out into the rat race of life that we keep our eyes fixed on the cross and on you. Pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.